Welcome to the Tim Hill Podcast. If you have the time, you can not only listen to the episodes, but you can also watch all the shows and you'll find the links in the description below. Thank you. Welcome to Series 3 of the Tim Hill Podcast. In the last two series, I've told you about my life. I've met many interesting people along the way who have become my friends and what they all have in common is they have fascinating stories of their own which they are happy to share with you now. Thank you for listening. Welcome to the Tim Hill Podcast. In this episode, I'm going to have a chat with James. James is going to tell us where and when he was born and then he's going to describe to us what it was like where he grew up the schools he went to, and the education that he received. So, James, come into the compound. <laughs> Thanks, Tim. I can't wait. Apparently, the backdrop You're Afghanistan. Welcome. You were sharing a bit of your story, and I was just honoured to hear it. So thanks for sharing. I love that. Brilliant. No worries. Right. So, when and where were you born? I was born in 1976 in Altona, Manitoba, Canada. So Manitoba is a province is directly north of North Dakota. So it's central Canada, small little community of about at the time, I think roughly four or 5,000 people as a farming community. Is that like north of the Black Hills? That's an interesting question. Yes, that would be true. Yeah, Black Hills of Dakota. Mm-hmm. There's a song about that. <laughs> I didn't know this. <laughs> Perhaps you want to sing it. <laughs> uh, how's it go? Um, in the Black Hills, the Black Hills of Dakota. And that's about all I know of it. <laughs> I have never been there, but all I can say is I had an experience of the Black Hills this morning and it came through you. So that was nice. <laughs> <laughs> There you go. I don't mind making a fool of myself. <laughs> so you didn't know I could sing, did you? <laughs> you know what? And I, you still don't. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And, and you know, and I have I have tried my my bagpipes at at uh, at singing. And the last time, my wife apparently thought I was a pretty good singer, and then she asked me to sing the song, and I forget which song. I I, I you know I tried noodling through, and she looked at me, and she just starts laughing. So I'm not sure what that means. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> so, middle of Canada then. Yeah. So what was the weather like there during, a, during your typical year? Do you get a lot of snow or is it um, well, is it a mountainous area? Yeah, no. Farming area? Farming, so flat. So prairies, very flat. And, um, I, you know, I met a, um, you know, a lady from China the other day and she figured she loved going on road trips traveling through the prairies. And I said, prairies ends up being, uh, begins in, in uh, um, Alberta, part of, and then it goes to Saskatchewan. It's just flat. And the Manitoba is just flat. Towards the uh, eastern edge of Manitoba, you start getting into a little more waves and uh, some um, lakes and stuff like that. But primarily, the province, the entire province of Manitoba and Manitoba, or sorry, Saskatchewan and Manitoba, it's just flat. So this, this lady I met mm. from China was saying she likes driving through the prairies because um, unlike where she lives in China, you can take your vehicle, put it on a road and just point in one direction and 
um, you see nothing for like, it's just straight and it's just <laughs> fields everywhere. And, it, and she goes, it's the only place I've ever traveled where the road is straight for like three days. <laughs> There's no bend. It just goes straight. So there's nothing to go around. It's just fields and fields open. So Manitoba, so where I live, uh, there's a lot of, uh, like I say, farming. So potato farming, grain farming. And um, these communities were that were quite industrious. And uh, so the communities that I come from, there's a large um, stringent on uh, or of Mennonite people. So not Amish people. <laughs> it's very, very different. Mm. But uh, Mennonites. Yeah. So Mennonites were, you know, a lot of them originally came from Germany and Russia. And through, they traveled through different places. And and um, so it basically it's a, some would say the faith tradition, but it's the way that they do life. And so they're very industrious and hardworking, work with their hands. So I found myself there. So yeah, it was interesting. And so my dad was a farmer and I remember I wanted to become a farmer, but I developed these seasonal allergies. And so that wasn't possible for me. So now we live on the West Coast in Vancouver. Ah. Yeah. So excellent. So schooling. What was your schooling like? Did you go to a, a little tiny sort of one room schoolhouse with a, <laughs> a, a little old school ma'am and, and, and all the kids from the, the, the farms around or, or was it a little bit slightly bigger than that yeah so we lived in the country and and uh at the time they had uh an annex off where if you live in the country you'd go to a country school and so from grade it used to be from grades one through 12 you would be in a small um school and basically you'd be in a classroom full of kids that were from ages uh, you know age five six grade one to grade 12 all in one class so the teacher would teach everyone <laughs> but however when i uh, entered school. Then uh, uh, this school had three classrooms, actually two. And the first classroom was from grade one to three. So one teacher for three grades, and there was roughly 30, 35 children in that class and from four to six in another class. And uh, actually, correction, there was three when I began. And that school was called New Hope School. So it was a small little school. Uh, it was a newer building, but in the country and it housed the country children. And the third class was from grade six to eight. And I remember the fear always was after you move from grade eight, you would go to high school, which is town school. And so I remember thinking in grade one, I had about seven years before I had to face the real fear. And what's interesting is they, is they ended up changing and saying that, and all of a sudden they took grade uh, seven and eight away. That classroom is no more, meaning they said, you'll actually be going to junior high, which is grade seven and eight. You'll be going doing that in town school. So I remember thinking, oh, my Lord, I'm going to be faced with with the with the dangerous town city folk <laughs> when I'm in grade six. <laughs> and so that was that that was my experience. And, uh, yeah, I had some 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 really interesting friends. Uh, and what was interesting is my parents, when I was a child, they never let me play sports, like organized sports, even though the high school or the teacher uh, the elementary teacher would often call my parents to say, he's good at this. Can you play? And, and I was never allowed to play. My parents held their faith tradition pretty religiously. And so they were always feeling like if I play sport, maybe then it would take away from Sunday worship. <laughs> so, and I get where they're coming from. It makes sense to me. And uh, not to say I live like that anymore, but um, uh, to be totally honest for us, uh, the friends that I had in school, I had a few, like I say, really good people. And but they did play organized sport. And so uh, I always did feel like someday when we went to town school, I wonder if these people would be friends of mine. And actually, when we went to town school in grade six, seven, 
Um, some of them just moved on and it was sad for me. So, but I really, to be honest, I really enjoyed those first few years of my school life. I did have an experience though. I didn't go to kindergarten and my first grade teacher was, her name is Mrs. Funk and Mrs. Funk on day, was it day one or day two of, um, of grade one, uh, asked questions and then said, James, would you like to answer? And I, so I, I answered and then whatever answer I gave, it seemed like it wasn't good enough. And she says to me, you see children, this is what happens when you don't go to kindergarten. <laughs> and I just sat there and thought, oh my goodness, what is she doing? I felt about this big. <laughs> oh dear. So yeah, that's, I guess that, that could, could possibly have a detrimental effect to your, to your schooling for the rest of your life. It, it kind of, it, it kind of, scarred. you know, I scarred for life. <laughs> it's kind of scarred for life. But what's interesting is I also had a stutter. And I think uh, what she said didn't make it any better. So I wasn't sure what she's saying is me as a person wasn't enough or how I talked wasn't enough. There were so many different plays. Let's just say my first or second day of school, it did it did kind of create these issues, right? And I did feel like a bit of a wounded duck right from the beginning. So, yeah. <laughs> so, so that was that was your initial baptism of fire into into first grade then. Oh, straight on. And and you know what? Honestly, um, that lady. I mean, holy smokes! I get. And I never forget. I was in grade three. And that was my last year in her class. And I was thinking I couldn't wait to get out. But then when I went to grade four and I was in Mr. Fast's class, so that, of course, was with grade four, five, and six, I felt so free of being free of Mrs. Funk. The only thing is I could hear her biting into her apple because the classroom was attached to the next class. And that apple bite always reminded me because she ate an apple the same day she put me to shame. So I'm like, whenever, whenever I hear an apple bite, I think of Mrs. Funk. And actually, she passed away a couple of years ago. And when she passed away, I remember I had to kind of like let go of some demons because there's still stuff circulating there. <laughs> oh, brilliant. So, so, so what happened when you moved up to junior high then? You, did, you, did you have a big mate that looked after you or, or did all the big kids in the, in the big town school pick on you because you was a... A country bumpkin. Yeah, that was a yeah, great, great question, Tim. Um, so like I was saying, I entered grade seven, so that was town school, and um I took my speech impediment with me. And I just stammered through a lot of my words. And uh, I'll never forget in grade eight, my mom had set up to have a speech therapist come see me. I didn't know it. I was sitting in my class and and all of a sudden I, had, I hear over the loudspeaker, James, come to the principal's office. And I thought, well, I don't know what I did. But I went and he said, here's this lady. And she'd like to have a little meeting with you. And I sat down and talked with her. And, and I realized very quickly she was here to help me with my speech. And I thought, well, this would have been helpful years ago, but it's certainly helpful now. And, uh, and what was interesting is she listened to me for a while. And she said, you know, James, you actually don't have a stutter at all. And I'm very – and I remember stopping her saying, well, what do you mean? Like I was pretty proficiently – and keenly aware of how I felt the way I talked and how I talked. And she said, you just think so fast. Your tongue literally cannot wrap around the words as fast as you're thinking. That's all that it is. And so you're going to have to retrain your brain how to think and how you speak. And what's interesting, so I use this story. I tee it up with this. Um, 
there were some boys that, and I forget, I think I was, uh, yeah, I was midway through grade eight and they were kind of hassling me. So to your point of being bullied, um, never really had the issue other than these kids, they were saying things. And I, I think it was about how I was speaking, if I remember correctly, but needless to say, um, they were really being rough on me. Like they weren't wrestling with me, but they're really poking hard and poking. I can, I can stand a poke like fair enough, but it was poked pretty hard. And I'll never forget. There was a guy in school that I really respected. His name is Ken Weeb. And he was one of the more popular kids in school, but I really appreciated him because he had this deep, how would I say it? Though he was popular and though he was involved in a lot of sport, but he seemed like he had a big heart. I remember people, they really appreciated him, but not just for the jockiness that he brought. He actually brought a certain value of character. And I couldn't put my finger on it other than I'll never forget the day when I was getting kind of bullied around. And um, I didn't know he was close. And he wasn't a friend of mine because I didn't really know him. We didn't were in the same circles. And uh, all of a sudden, I heard him and his friends walk by. They were several yards away, but he must have overheard what was going on. And he 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 came. He walked. I remember seeing his group. They turn around and they walk towards where we were. And he said, "Leave him alone." And I'll never forget. I get emotional thinking about that because it just made me go. Mm. Holy smokes, this guy doesn't know me. But this guy's got a heart and he's using he's using his power for strength. And it made me go, and you know, honestly, the kids are bullying me. They backed off so quickly. And he and Ken had some pretty big guys around him too, and some pretty tough guys. And mm. these guys can mess around with these kids pretty quickly. And that to me was so special. To be honest, and the funny story is this: several years later, I was in high school. And you know how it is. You're looking for people to date, apparently. You're looking for who you can pick to date. And Ken's sister was maybe three or four years, two or three years, actually two or three years younger than me. I didn't really know much about her, but I realized at that age, and I didn't go to the same high school as him. And I'll, and I'll mention this later. I went to a private school, private high school. But um, I realized he had a younger sister. And I asked her out on a date. And I wasn't that interested in her, but I was trying to get to him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I'll never forget that day when Ken said, leave him alone, leave him alone. And those kids just turned and walked away. It just, it actually just made me go, holy smokes. And it was just, it was, yeah, it was lovely. He, he clearly knew right from wrong then. And, um, mm-hmm. and obviously, yeah, under, understood what was going on. And um, the, these other irks must have been doing it to other people. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, fair play to him. Mm-hmm. True. So you managed junior high then, um, and you got away with without being bullied too much. <laughs> How was your speech coming on? Did that did that work? Did you manage to slow your mind down to catch up with your mouth? You know, yeah, that was it's, it's such a. Oh, I love that. Thanks, Tim. Um, Remember those words that she gave me, that speech therapist? It really pierced me because I thought there's something I can do about this. And I was all the eager, passionate about doing something. And I had tried through blame. You know how it is. You, you shame yourself. You try to help yourself cross a finish line. Like there's something wrong with me. And perhaps if I just accept there's something wrong with me. And so I tried all those techniques prior to, but now she brought the good news. But they shocked me. And it's like, I get to do something about it. And like, how do I do this? And she says, your thinking is so fast. And so 
Of course, what do you do when you've created a construct of a healthy appreciation that you might be a problem? Now you're thinking that the speed of your talking is a problem or your speed of your thinking is a problem. And so I addressed for, so now, like you say, transitioning to high school, um, typically when they'd ask for who'd want to volunteer to come speak in front of the class, like I'd be the last to raise my hand. As soon as it's time for group work, I would just like shy away. And I, you know, my social life really struggled. And I, you know, I was honestly, I'll be, I'll be frank. I was depressed for most of my high school years because just trying to keep myself small. And yet there was something that wanted just to come out. Like I, I you know, I love to be. And um, constantly telling myself, you know, James, and of course, the language on and how I saw the speed of my thinking and how it translated into the speed of my talking, it came from the perspective of that I'm still the problem. So I tried that on for about a year or maybe two. And uh, of course, it just made me feel less and less. And the people were lovely. Like my parents, they sent me to um, this private Christian school and they really wanted to, to be there with me and to, to help me along with and a lovely school um, full of a lot of different kids. Like it wasn't just people who were of like staunch faith. People often, kids got sent if they were in trouble, if their parents realized, you know, if they're from different parts of the country mm-hmm. or they'd send their kids here. And so I was with a, a large group of people. So there's definitely opportunities for bullies to poke. But what's fascinating, I think what I did is I made myself not seen to the point where bullies wouldn't poke. And so I realized that I think my speaking is doing a lot of it. Like, why give people something to bug? So why would I speak? Mm. So I did less and less and less of it. And I and again, as soon as the teacher would say anything like, now it's time for group work, just find a partner of three. Oh my goodness, I would just, it's just it, was, it was hell for me. It was the worst. I'd go to the bathroom, I'd be like, trying to stay uninvolved and it was just, it was crazy. And then if we do group presentation, um, I would find certain words that I could say clearly and say, well, I'll say those, that piece or something. And, and often it was the, where words started with R and I forget what they were, but back then I remember I knew exactly which words would trigger me. And I would just go on and on and on about that. And I couldn't get through that word. And I would just stay in my, keep stumbling like, and then I just couldn't get it out. And uh, what's interesting is nobody actually in high school ever bugged me about it. If ever I did it, they never really said anything about it. And as Mm -hmm. far as I'm concerned, they held a lot of grace and space for me. But um, I couldn't let go of retraining my brain. And so I knew that there had to be something there. And then I'll never forget, was it in mid-grade 10 or maybe grade 11? Probably grade 10. Where I just really got about saying, listen to keep blaming myself that I'm the problem because I speak like this. How about I look at this differently now? It's clearly not working that I'm the problem. She gave me some good news. Why don't I keep it at good news? I can entrain my brain to slow down. But then I thought, what comes first? The slowing down of the brain or the speed of talk? And what I realized is I had to, and I, I think I realized this well later, but what I what I realized now I was doing, I was and training myself that when I was talking and feeling the inner judgment of you're not good enough and you should do it like this or like that, that I was slowing it down for myself and saying my brain, though it's fast, I get to choose what I want to speak about with all of that's happening in here. Mm. 
And so I made a pivot and I remember thinking, wow, this is very difficult work. I had to retrain how I spoke. I had to retrain that maybe certain words weren't a problem, like with that started with R. Um, and I spent much, let's say, until the completion of high school, like I had decided that people already knew me for this and it was my identity. And so this was how it was going to stay until I exited. So of course my preoccupation came with just being done and getting out, just getting out. So grade 12, for example, I showed up for maybe a quarter of the classes. My constant excuse was there was farming work to be done. I had to go home and help. And though our farm wasn't that big, I don't know how I passed, to be honest, other than I think some teachers had sympathy <laughs> sympathy on me. <laughs> just that I don't know if they realized I was just struggling. And mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, I'll share a story later about how somebody came along, the person that I currently live with who's married to me, how she came along and how that whole stuttering problem just disappeared because she accepted it from a level. But yeah, you know, when I came to, when I think going back and thanks for triggering me back to that spot, those are difficult years. Um, mm -hmm. And sometimes I think about those years, I have a, a son who's high functioning autistic and he thinks so fast. I've never been tested for anything. I have worked on myself ferociously though, to communicate and to take all of the nuance and the different uh, paths and bunny trails to tie them together. I think I used to doubt that I had any ability to do that. And that's where a lot of this stammering came from. Like, what does this even mean? And so I, you know what I mean, right? So it just yeah. all cre you know, created a hornet's nest. So, so you managed to <laughs> survive high school then. Mm -hmm. So when you graduated, I mean, clearly you didn't graduate of honours then. No. So, But did, did, did you have the prom? Did you manage to... Mm -hmm. uh, get enough to, to leave uh, to to graduate on time because because as I understand it if you if you if you don't um, pass all your your tests and everything you have to retake the year mm -hmm. is that is that the way it works yeah. over there yeah that's that that is how it works yeah mm -hmm. got to retake so, the year. So, yeah so so twelve becomes thirteen but <laughs> it's twelve again <laughs> well and actually you bring an interesting point so. I had missed so many classes uh, math and I was taking uh, university entrance math, like the most difficult of maths. So I didn't want to opt out just in case. I don't know what I was thinking, but I never wanted to. I, and I challenged myself, like, uh, even though the thought of school is just extending hell, like, why would I do this? But I hmm. never wanted to cut myself short. So I always wanted to put the bet, my best foot forward. But, but to that point, I would, um, I skipped so many classes in grade 11 and grade 12, most of my math classes. And of course, if you don't click into like a <laughs> a math formula at the beginning, you're Jamie lost the whole year. And so my my grades, to your point, brings up this memory. I I needed to, in order for me to pass math so that I would not need to come back to school the next year, and I may just have had to do math again. I'm not sure how they'd work that, uh, to be honest, but the thought of coming back for another year, oh my goodness, that was just too much. But anyway, for me to get my certificate and graduate, I mapped it out and my average, my math average was something like, what was it 20 or 30% of the year? And I had to, in order for me to get a 50% balance, the exam was worth 
50% of the year, something like this. Forget the exact metrics, but it was highly steeped as far as the importance. And I did the, I did my math and I had to score at minimum was an 85 or 90% of my math exam. Now keep in mind, I was failing every assignment, getting 10, 15, 35%, 25% average, 20 average, whatever it was. Outrageous. And I, yeah. And so <laughs> it's pressure. It's pressure. So I came home studying for exams. I had finished my other exams and I had one exam left, final year. And it was the weekend. And, and I had some friends who, these, some of these guys that I hung with, they, they like to ride dirt bike and four wheelers and three wheelers. And so they wanted to come to my place. And I said, listen, I got to study for my exam. And so I started studying Friday afternoon and of course, trying to wrap myself around how would I figure this out? And so looking back at homework and trying to stress test how the teacher marked it up and how he showed the formula and going through the notes that I did have, which were very minimal, going through the textbook. And I struggled and struggled and frustrated, stayed up almost all night. And then I got up really early Saturday and I stayed up till late again. And I remember thinking all of a sudden, just exhausted, putting my binder down on the bed going, honestly, I don't get any of this. There's, I've, Everything I've been doing since Friday till now, there's not a hope. If anything, I'm more confused than ever. And uh, I thought I'll, I'll crack it one more day Sunday. Tomorrow's the day. I have no idea, but tomorrow's the day because I got the exam Monday morning first thing. So I woke up in the morning. I think we went to church that day, whatever it ended up being, because uh, that was a thing you did. You did not go to church, even if you had studied. the church was the thing. You had food, but that was your spiritual food. So you go take that in, right? So I can appreciate that. And um, I came back and, and I remember I sat, sat on my bed and thinking, here I sit. My whole schooling life in front of me, basically. All for what end? How I, what the outcome of this, the score of this exam is going to determine. I thought I was done suffering, but apparently maybe not. We'll see. And what came to heart in that moment I'll never forget, I took my notes, I turned them upside down, I took a new piece of paper, and I said, if I were to work with how my brain functions, how would I see this? How would I see these formulas? And I just started going on a rant, like with numbers. I just started penciling things and creating my own formula, how I understood it. How my brain worked. So here you go. I engaged in grade 10. Remember how I said I flipped the switch and I started thinking, how is this not bad news? How is it maybe something for good? And I started just leaning into how I saw things. And I created my formula and formulas. And what's interesting is I turned over my, my page and I stress tested it against the answer that the teacher has showed that he came up with. And on some of them, it was exactly the same. And I was like, whoa, my own formula for an entire math year, formulas for the entire. And I'm like, hey, wait a minute, something's working here. In some areas it wasn't. So I went back and I looked at his thing, not saying I suck, but going, what is that? What is that? And then I turned the page over and then I stress tested and then I made some inference. I just listened to my brain and made some inference. And then I turned it back and I did that until literally it took me almost, was it two or three hours? In three hours? I'm like, I get all of it, but I go, I get it through the way I do it. But if they're going to look at my work, they're going to have not a clue how I got there because how I did this is not how they taught me. 
And I remember in grade, or I remember Monday morning, go to school feeling so encouraged or feeling so completely devastated. Thinking either I'm going to ace this thing or get zero. If they mark me on how I got to the answer, it'll be a big fat zero because this they this is not what they taught. Mm. I did my exam. And typically when I did math tests or any assignments, it take me a long time because remember, I missed all of these formulas. This exam was an hour and a half. I had my exam done in about half the amount of time. And I walked to the front of the class, handed on my exam. And my, my students or the, my friends look at me going, I remember this. And even the teacher who was marking my math exam, he ended up sitting in that same class that other people are doing exams. And we happened to be in a large group with a bunch of exam writing. He looked at me. He's kind of like, hmm. And I remember thinking, well, I did my best. And I remember shaking, walking up and giving him the paper. I gave it to him. And then I left. But, you know, I didn't clean out my locker. I didn't clean out my locker because I realized I might need it next year, even though I probably cleaned it out that year anyway. But. I could come back that, that, that Friday if I wanted to clean out. So I went home. I came back Friday, and I ended up passing the math teacher in the hallway. And he looked at me, and he stopped, and he had marked my exam by then, I guess, already. He said to me, firstly, I have no idea how you got to how you got to your answers. But let me tell you something. Not only did you pass, and I forget the exact amount, but it was either 95, 97, 98, 99, or was it 100? I forget. I don't want to give myself that much slack, but it was so on point. And I remember going, miracle. That's all that, all that happened. <laughs> so that's, uh, that's you graduated then? I graduated, and I'm like, oh, I am out of this. We, we don't know the math. Totally. Well, my average is still about 50 because I needed a really high grade to get to the passing. Yeah. Tip over it, but I get it. Yeah, yeah, honors and math. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. So, finally graduated then. Did you go to prom or did you mug that off? You know what? We didn't have – we didn't have – so Canadian school, I don't know if we didn't have prom. Like, but, yeah, no, we didn't have prom. No, not not like Americans. They don't yeah. want to yeah. celebrate it all. No, but we did have an aftergrad party, and so I went to the aftergrad party, and um, and I do remember my day after the aftergrad as much as I did the grad party, and I remember just thinking, you see, I didn't like school, so perhaps I should really enjoy the afterlife of the after school. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll tell you something: that first day of after school, I realized who was still in there. It was the judge or the critiquer constantly being mm. like if you don't if you don't slay something today you're you're a complete failure so i remember i didn't have a job the first day and people weren't calling me fast enough so that i could go work and i remember thinking my life is going to be miserable you see now the real world sees who i actually am see i got to hide in the walls of school but now the world's really going to mm. see who i am so where'd you go next yeah. What was what was in store for you after high school? Yeah, high school. So I had several jobs, of which I got fired from, I think, all of them. My dad was a so was a leader of this church organization. So I was raised in a home where, you know, leadership. But I remember thinking, well, for me to have a job, I'm gonna have to like lead myself well. And often if it's very hard to work with yourself what a human does is you learn to think that trying to manage or controlling other people might be a good thing to do and so i wonder how 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 much i owned my own responsibilities i don't think i really did 
And I was looking for relief constantly. So I wouldn't put it on my dad or anything like this. That he taught me this. But I remember just thinking, you see, like my wound was, now let's see what the world's going to, like the world's going to see that I'm really a fallacy now. And so I was constantly in defense. And uh, never forget, there's my first job. I was, I was a gas jockey pumping fuel. And the boss was just a jovial individual, right? Just a, that's a lovely person, actually. And, you know, and he, you know, he would get us all in for pizza uh, every week. And he was a you know bigger gentleman and he'd eat like three large pizzas himself. And he would <laughs> seriously. He would, and, and so this guy was just like, was amazing. And so what he did the one day, I was running a transaction for a client and then we were doing a grand reopening of his business. And he was just having fun. And so there's balloons behind the, you know, the counter. And he takes one of the balloons, I guess, off of one of these sticks and he pops it right behind me and it spooked me. And him and the client were laughing, but I thought they're laughing at me. They weren't laughing at me. They were just having fun that I got spooked. I was so mad because I felt so threatened. You know what I mean? Like, oh my goodness. Yeah. It was just shock. And I, I just, and that was one job that I decided to quit. So if I could tell that I was uncomfortable, and that I might create issue, then I would just take myself out. So this is the job that I just said. I looked at him and said, I quit. I can't believe you'd ever do it in front of a client. He said to me, hey, I was just trying to have fun with you. And I said, no, you weren't. You were, <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> so I quit, right? I quit. So did you end up going, because did you get enough points to be able to go to you, to college or, or, or did you? So I got enough points to go to college. And so I went to college, or at least I was going to try it. I enrolled in some business courses. A couple of years after I graduated, I, I you know, enrolled in some business classes and, and decided I want to get into business for myself. Like, you know, why not? <laughs> okay. I've, you know, I've made such a mess out of my life. So why not volunteer for the business arena? No, anyway, I, I mean, I felt like I made a mess of my life. And so, of course, you go to school with that thing and going, I can't believe I'm doing this all over again. And, um, I lasted two days. <laughs> I got the textbooks, sat down in the class. And I remember thinking, you're such a loser. You could have done this four years ago and you could have had a degree like some of your friends do already. Mm. And I remember just thinking to myself, you know, what really needs to happen here? You do know some things and maybe some things are to fight for your responsibilities instead of fighting for relief. Maybe you know that to question your worth constantly and think that anything is going to give you worth other than if you decide that you are just a person and that you start enjoying yourself like you did when you did that math exam and you just unfolded and you got pretty good grade. Maybe, maybe now it's time to just activate life. So I left school. I'll never forget. I started dating this little girl. I'm married to her now. Her name is Meg and I've been with her for 27 years. I've got two boys, teenager, 17, 15. And Never forget I was dating her and she was a cute little button. Like she's she's still that cute button in my life. She's <laughs> four, ten and three quarters. She's a small little I call her the mini Meg and she's my, you know, mini of my life. And 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 so speaking about so I largely when I say conquered, I just learned when not to speak. So if I really doubted myself, then not speak, because that's when a lot of the stammering would come out. So I kind of trained myself away from that and and so I remember I was dating her and things are going really well. It was still entry stages of our relationship. I think it was a month or two in and thinking things were going really well and thinking, you know, this might just be the one. And I'm really feeling connected and never forget standing in her parents' foyer 
and uh, she was standing about three steps higher than I, and so we're about the same height now. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and all of a sudden, I just had a moment of uh, feeling like being myself. I guess I mean she she was so relaxing, she was so peaceful and so energetic, and she had so much fire and, and excitement in her. It was just a lovely little soul, and it just oh, like I was so sheltered on the farm, and here's a girl that came from kind of like a messed up home. Dad's an alcoholic, but just all kinds of shit going down at their house. And I'm like, this is awesome. <laughs> this is different, right? And I remember standing there and ch- chatting with her. And then all of a sudden, I um, found myself in a stutter pattern. And I'd done a little bit of that with her, but not too much. And I talked about it a little bit, but not much. But I couldn't stop. My ears got all red. Finally, I stopped after about a minute trying to finish a sentence. And I said, I'm sorry, baby. And I remember thinking I'm saying sorry because she's going to say it's over now. I said, I'm sorry. I'm thinking, you know what? She now saw who I really was. I'm just a mess. She won't want to be with me. And she looked at me in that moment. I'll never forget it. She looked at me and she says, oh, no. I know. I don't think you said a word. She goes, that's true. But she looked at me and she goes, I know exactly what you were saying. And I'll never forget, man, I just, my tears started coming. It just starts, they couldn't stop. They just start flowing, it's flowing. And I remember being, somebody gets this without me actually getting words out properly. What is this? Is it maybe true that my fear of saying everything perfectly doesn't need to be anymore? People actually do communicate with empathy. The first language that we have is humans, empathy. And is that, anyway, it's just, oh my goodness. So yeah, when you ask about after high school, in the small community where we came from, and in the Mennonite tradition, it was kind of like, are you going to get married and have kids? <laughs> so, so I was twenty. So I was twenty years old when I met her, and that's when, or twenty-one, twenty-two, and um, and of course, some of my people had friends that graduated, uh, you know, from college already, and I tried college for a little bit of time, and then I met Meg, and I remember thinking to myself at that age, twenty-one, twenty-two, I'm not dating, and I bet you I'll just be left as a bachelor and as a loser for all my life like to me it's like get married <laughs> fast you know so that's what happened that so anyway to make a long story short i'm like phew i just scraped that one but i didn't get married at 25 or 26 and i feel like i just barely made it but the truth is now that i live on the west coast and of course i live a different life uh you know mm-hmm. there's there's no need for my rowan who's going to be turning 18 next year for him to be like fearing not 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 being with a spouse at 18 or finding someone right so yeah <laughs> So, you got married then? I did. So, what were you doing for work? How did, I mean, she obviously understood you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess she, she must still understand you because she's still with you. So, <laughs> a couple of years later. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, you'd, you'd have been out on good behaviour by now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. So, uh so how did you go forward? Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously you couldn't go into farming because of, True. because of your hay fever. I mean, that's not not the, the greatest thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So where did you go? How, how did you get on with the first stages of marriage? Mm-hmm. So we got married in uh, the year 2000. And um, so that makes us married for 22 years now, together for 27. But uh, Meg was a nurse's assistant or nurse aide or something. And so she's going to school to be a nurse or she's contemplating doing that, taking the next step. And so 
uh, I had uh, decided that farming, of course, well, farming had decided for me that it wasn't for me. So I'd taken up a, you know, a position of being a, a delivery driver. And so I would drive. And on the farm, I had my class one semi-truck driving license. So I drove truck. And so I drive across the border and I would haul livestock twice a week. I'd make two super long days out of the week. And so that was my position. And it allowed me the autonomy and freedom to think on my own and just develop some thinking and some compassionate thoughts towards, I guess, me and life in general, and just contemplate the greater tensions of life. And uh, with the income that I was generating, with the income that she was making, we bought a little single family or um, single, yeah, it was a single bedroom house. Well, actually it was a two bedroom house, but really small. I think it's a 650 square foot house. And uh, we got married, so proud, went on a little honeymoon to New York. We stopped in at the Poconos and then we went to New York. And we came back, and upon return, I got a little phone call from my boss, so the company who I drove truck for, and he just said, listen, there's no more, his words were, there's no more loads for you, like no more loads for you to haul. And I thought, this is devastating news. The day of return, I got mortgage obligation. My wife can't cover mortgage. I got no job. And actually, I remember sitting down with her and being like, and she already knew my story, like I already shared with her the thanks that I'd had that she could hold my stuttering and just be there with me and just live with me and just enjoy life. Like she just treated me like as a, an ordinary human. I'll, I'll never forget the gift that that was for me. Well, uh, my, my life, like I started being playful of my life at that point. And now all of a sudden I wasn't right or wrong. It was just playfulness. And so I remember sitting in there on the, on the couch with her uh, contemplating what had just happened that I got, you know, there's no more loads apparently and thinking, well, how, how am I going to do this? And there's something that, she was always about in that um, her in her home, because her environment was non, not even close to perfect, she just has this thing like nothing has to be perfect. Why? Why, why does anything have to be perfect? Nothing has to be perfect. And so she kind of, I remember looking at her going, she doesn't seem concerned at all. I seem really worried. She doesn't seem concerned at all. And, um, and what's interesting is within that, I learned that nothing traps her. Every, you know, everything actually frees her. She's like, wow, she goes. She crosses her legs and she goes, well, what kind of opportunities do we have now? She goes. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, goodness. Like, thank goodness that's for her. Like, that was a quick reframe exactly when I needed it. And I said, you know, honestly, baby, I've always wanted to do my own business. And I think maybe now is the time. And then she looked at me, she goes, yeah, and, but the only thing is, see, her mom has a fabric store, had a fabric, and still does actually own this fabric store. And she was a little resentful towards some of her parents' career choices, because that's, I think, how she could see that maybe they hadn't invested in her life a lot improperly. And so she's like, yeah, but, you know, a job, you know, a job wouldn't a job be better, though? Uh, and then, and I'm like, yeah, but, you know, my history with jobs isn't that great. Like, let's be honest. <laughs> and I don't want to put us in, like, I didn't get fired from this job, but I mean, from from a lot of other ones, like, I was really struggling with my self-worth for many years, to be honest. And I think I'm ready for that now, too, but this could be an opportunity, baby. And I said, you know, if I just work my tail off, and you know, I'm willing to do that. And anyway, we decided that I was going to um, start a custom home building company. I never built a house, nor was I going to, because I couldn't work with dust because of my allergies. Mm. And so she wore, she picked up extra shifts at her workplace, at her nursing uh, place. She, she was working at an old folks home at the time. She was the bath girl. She liked to just help people get clean and bathe and help them with those things and just a servant of heart. And, and, um, and so I went about, I, you know, I had about eight months before our income or our bank account was drawn to zero. And so mm. 
I hustled, hustled, hustled. And my idea, firstly, was to sell homes into our local market, like build on site. Um, the only thing is it seemed like a challenge that um, wouldn't garner proper profits. At the same time, it also wasn't a large enough challenge. I like to challenge myself to something greater. Like I taught myself to think differently, to talk differently. So I'm like, I am, you know, I'm up for any challenge. And so I decided, why not sell product? Why not sell custom homes into markets? So first they sell them where we lived, which is in the Altona Winkler area. So build them and sell them there, but then move them into areas where the profit margins were higher. So at the time, the U.S. exchange rate was was massively in favor for U.S. citizens to come over there. You know, the, you know, the dollar was worth 40 percent more than the Canadian. And so we decided to start an, a, a ready to move home company that was more than just like trailers. They're like 37 feet wide by 100 feet long. A massive houses, really customized. And, um, and so I'll never forget, I, I went to talk to trade partners in our area and architects and different people that I was building a team with. And most of them just laughed me out of the office. They're like, you've never done this before. And so what has you think you can do this? And on and on. And I was hearing all of the doubts. It's a little bit like me hearing all of my doubts mm -hmm. of myself when I was a kid. And I remember thinking, wow, yeah, no, it's true. But thinking, you know what, all I have to do, like, I don't need to know exactly how to do, how to build a house myself or how to even uh, do certain things, but I just need to know how to put a team of people together. And I think, and I thought, remember, I can do this, but how will I? And I remember just uh, um, coming to a place, I'll never forget. So my wife was at work and it was running at about six and a half months in. And so keep in mind, again, I was saying eight months, I could see our bank account be drawn down to zero. And I was doing reconciliation, just mapping out. And sure enough, I had about a month and a bit left. And, uh, I remember thinking, oh my goodness, like here I am, uh, we're living in a small 675 square foot house. We're using this as our office. So when people come up and we had army generals sometimes like to, to, to your, like these people of prestige who come up and I remember thinking they're probably looking for some fancy place. And here they're coming to a small little house, walking into a tiny home with a tiny little bedroom. And that's where I had an office desk where we, where we'd, I'd have the chairs that they would sit in. I'd taken out the closet door. So they'd sit in the closet and face the table, and that's where I was sitting. And I'm thinking to myself, this is all just going to go to ruin, but thinking, well, no, there's a chance. And I had the builders who I had finally, uh, finally, some people did align with me and said, you know what, if anyone can make it happen, I think you can. You're an unknown in the area in business, but it seems like you're a passion for it. So, and I had these teammates around me. Some of these people had built homes. So we used their homes as a showpiece when people came up to see our house. I'll never forget, I was sitting there, so back to the story, I'm sitting on the sofa, my wife's at work, and I'm doing reconciliation with numbers and thinking to myself, Kate, okay, you know what? Honestly, you're running tight, James. How are you gonna do this? Because you're not gonna you're not gonna be the one that's gonna have these fumes exhaust, and then sh you won't have enough money. This just won't happen. And um, I remember thinking to myself, you know, what's the roadblock? I seem to have people who want my houses. When people come up, a lot of them ask me questions, and my answer constantly was, "My dad always told me in life, if you don't know, you don't shovel. You just say the truth." So what I didn't know, I'd say, I don't know, yet I'll get back to you with an answer. I had one client that I had found that had come as an army sergeant down from Minneapolis area. And uh, he said, actually, you know, you're the only one that we keep coming back to because you're the only one that seems to be honest. Like you seem to say when you don't know something, you say it. And even though we ask, and most of the things we ask, you don't know, you always get back to us with the answer. So you just seem honest. And, um, and so here's the thing, right? I'm thinking this might be the deal. This might be the client that might just get me going. The only thing is I'm having this issue with money, meaning the banks won't borrow me anything. My parents didn't have mm. money to fund anything. 
And I was an unknown in business. So of course I can't really leverage anything. And I had a small little house in which I had a mortgage. So I can't leverage that. So thinking, how am I going to, what, you know, I'm thinking to myself, how, what am I thinking anyway? How am I going to build houses if I don't have the money? And I remember thinking, what were you thinking when you started this whole thing? And all I remember thinking is that will work itself out. So here's to the play on it. I remember just like back to my story when I was sitting on the bed thinking about my math exam Sunday, a couple hours left before the exam, I had to do something. D-Day was now. What was going to come for me? Let's see. And what I came to is this whole project, this whole my dream to start my own business is all going to die really quickly if I don't shift the narrative. And I remember thinking, what's the narrative? What's the narrative? What's, the, what's holding me back? And I thought, well, money, 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 money. And I thought, well, what happens if I could do business without money? And I thought, no, that's a silly question. I'm like, James, but you've asked other silly questions. Why not just go there for a while? Hmm. And I remember asking, so what about money could you do different? So if it's true that both are true, you need money, but maybe your problem that you have with money, um, you could mature that problem by you just sitting with this issue for a bit and seeing what is this? And all of a sudden the thought on timing came to play. What happens if I time when I need the money? So instead of waiting for the money at the end, meaning instead of me having to build and fund the project myself right from the start to the end, what happens if I would just front load heavy on the initial payment? So before I begin, it was prepayment. So make a long story short, I adjusted, I, I put that into the metric and I kid you not, Tim, this is no, no tale short of just the truth of what it was. On the day of it, I, and back then, I kind of made these deals with God. I don't know what I was doing, but I made these deals with God, right? <laughs> so whatever that even means. But the deal with God that I made was this. Lord, I said back in the day, I said, if you, if, if you want this to work, I'm not going to look for a job or be worried about it at all. I'm not going to put concern to it until not the week before I run out of income but I will wait until the Monday after it expires. It was a Friday afternoon. Chris calls me and says, James, we're on the way to Winkler, Altona area. We want to come see you. And I thought, oh, they're just going to, they're probably coming because they looked at some other builders in the area and they're probably going to tell me because they're gracious people. We're going to go with those people. It happened before. It's going to happen all over again. They pulled up and they already knew my term and sent them the contract. They want to do this. They pulled up, they opened the window, and I thought, here's the news. It's going to come. Here it is. Meaning, sorry, you're a nice guy, but there's no houses on the lot. You say you do this, but there's no proof of anything other than the one show home that we walked through that your builders built, but you haven't even done that. And Chris, Chris reaches out the window and says, James, and he's holding a piece of paper. And I thought, what is this? And he gave it to me as a check for $76,000. And my friend, that paid for me to build, to start building their house. And to make a long story short, that's what my, that's how our life started. It started with me thinking, you know what? Here I am screwing it up again. And then she comes along mm -hmm. and she's like, actually, it's an opportunity. She said, I don't know about business or yeah, because my mom has, how about a job? And I said, honey, just trust me on this. And I'll be honest, those months of working hard to get my business going, I actually did pull a part-time job where I get up at three o'clock in the morning and I work for my brother-in-law from three o'clock to eight o'clock. And I just changed mobile signs. These little signs that have these neon letters, I would change those mobile signs and I built signs for him. And by eight o'clock I had made enough so that I could 
fuel my marketing because I hadn't thought of the marketing money I needed. I had eight months mm. of money capital saved up, but not for marketing. So th those hours were yeah. all put towards marketing. <laughs> so that's what you got you going then. So first client, $76,000. Mm -hmm. How did it go? Did it work? Okay. So that's a good question. I ran that business for Did you deliver. <laughs> I delivered, and I'll never forget. I went from having no houses on the lot, so I, I I leased a lot. I went to having from having no houses, nobody knew me in in the area for business, to being invited to these dinners, and I was sitting at these tables with these prominent leaders in our area. They didn't know who I was, and they would talk about Jada Holmes. I was the owner of Jada Holmes, but they didn't know it was me. And so I went from having no houses on our lot to having like 11 houses. They're all lined up, all pre-built. And they're saying, who is this person? Like, where do they, where does he get, where, 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 where do they get their funding from? And they would talk about these things. I'll never forget my brother-in-law. He said to me, so when I, when I had my first million in the bank account, keep in mind, it was a million. These million worked towards funding the projects it wasn't profit it was towards funding so i could have blown it all but i was taught to be responsible and so i never bought myself stuff i never you know i i made sure all my vendors were paid first before i realized any profits so i delivered and my people were honestly tickled pink like we moved houses uh like it costs our company roughly 50 to 100 thousand dollars to move a house because we had to shut down roads and police escorts would drive and we'd have these big houses. Mm. And uh, oh my goodness, did I deliver? I'll tell you what I delivered. Great income, money like I'd never seen before. I think I made myself proud, but really I was trying to prove to my dad that I was worthy of making money because I could do it. I could see what I was doing now. But, yeah. but I also delivered on the fact that, hold, did I give myself an experience? Like I went from living in the small house to building. So after I had sold these houses, I realized what kind of profit. I built myself a brand new show show home in town and they just called it like the white house in town because one of the best houses in town and i wanted to build it really nice so i use it to sell other houses from uh i bought new vehicles i bought my data you know a restored 1949 pickup thought i had it made in the shade you know how it is when you think you have it made in the shade you think you have it made until oh, yeah. until it also comes falling down so that they also did come so <laughs> so what was your downfall well, <clears throat> I think I realized all over again that proving it to anyone, actually a little bit like proving to myself, might be a bit of a waste of time. Because when the U.S. exchange plummeted, I had no market. Mm. Well, honestly, it was a bit of my exit strategy. I kind of did have it mapped out thinking, you know, I, you know, my wife, she wasn't too beholden to having like uh, permanent infrastructure. So we leased land, we built an office, but we built it like a house. So we sold it like a house later on. And when the market shifted, so my exit strategy, I was sitting on a pile of dough, to be honest, I was good. The only thing is my pivot was really awkward. And I remember those voices coming back on, here I am, I've proved myself that financially I could, I could do it. So my dad didn't have money. And so our parents always demanded that we're good, kind, responsible people, but it seemed like they desired also money. 
And so they say that children will more so model the desire over demand. It's what a child will do. So if you say to the child, don't do this, but you're laughing when it happens, well, the child sees you like laughing more than your demand. So I firstly proved it to myself, but also, I guess, to my parents that I had achieved. And my dad was a pastor of a church, never made money from being a pastor. He was a volunteer, but he gave all his life and had a farm. And I kind of managed the farm. I was one of the only, well, I was the only boy and four sisters. And from, from a young age, I was managing the farm. So I had proof to myself that you can have both. You can help people, my dad did, and you can have a lot of money. And uh, unfortunately, though, I began to realize that this whole structure, well, how I built my life, even though I wasn't braggadocious about it, I realized that proving anything to anyone, including myself, was short-term fix. Because who was in there had always been in there. So I fell into a million pieces. I checked out of life for two, two and a half years. Almost lost the business, almost lost my investments, almost lost my wife and kids. I had Rowan and Harrison at the time. They were already born. But Harrison, my youngest, had, had high-functioning autism. So he was, he was diagnosed with high-functioning high autism. I'll never forget, I fell to a million pieces because here I was, our family was treating him. So Meg, me, Rowan, uh, but Meg is very much the kind of person, like, you don't have to change for anyone. Like, we wrap around how you are, Harrison. He was just a young little baby at the time, but you could see he was, he was different. And I remember thinking, gee, this is interesting. This kid gets the gift of just being different. I wish I would have had that gift when I was a kid, I'm thinking. But then I did some reconciliation. I thought, well, actually, my parents are very loving. They are very generous people. So who is stopping the gift? And again, I came back to, and you'll, you'll hear my whole narration, it's constantly me judging and blaming myself. And, mm. and um, my friend, it was just so much to handle, thinking that I may have wasted most of my life. And again, I'm being harsh on myself, but I've done life thinking that maybe people haven't given me permission to exist wherever I go, but I'm the one that's holding this whole thing back. And so I remember thinking I could heal myself or heal myself away from these thoughts by thinking of it more. But the more I thought about it, the more of a recluse I became. So much to like the point, I would sleep 18 hours a day. I would hide out in the bedroom, lived in a new house, sold off our vehicles except for one. And uh, I'll never forget, my wife comes, it was about a year and three quarter in. I hadn't seen my family because everything was so nerve wracking for me. Like everything was like pressure for me. Like I'm not performing. And I think I realized that I had, I had been performing life instead of living life. Mm. And any of the supports that I had around me were actually all crumbling now. This whole thing was built on toothpicks. So was this after the the, 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 the US crash in Hawaii, was it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. mm. Mm -hmm. So that, that, yeah, so you were feeling the effects of, of, of the, the crash in America, um, where you built this business up on on American money, I guess, mm -hmm. um, and they, uh, and when their market sort of dried, mm -hmm. it um, it sent you into a bit of a spiral with with, with no um, no way forward. So you also went into a deep depression. What was the catalyst that brought you out of it? 
I think I became satiated. I think I know I became satiated. I, I became very done with hoping and praying it was going to get better. And I'm just tapping back into some of your great questions you've been laying down here. A lot of what's coming to me is a reactivation in that moment, the catalyst being what has been your saving grace in all things? Was it when you took lengthy pause or was it when you finally were about the work saying, what can I do about this now? How quickly can tables churn? And I, I say that now. I didn't ask myself that then, but I was so sick of it and so miserable and feeling so depleted and so wrecked, feeling anything but like the man who I had always thought that I would be in a time like this. Seeing my wife literally volunteer to do childcare for other kids, to support a grocery list of items that we needed throughout the week. Hmm. These were areas that made me go, holy shit, what is going on here? I remember being like, yeah, but it's not fair. It's not how I prefer it. I remember being like, if I'm smart, I'm going to be picking up that life owes me nothing. As a matter of fact, it seems like we all have to make choices. And I remember instead of waiting for things to get better, I started participating with creating and designing my life. I think just absolutely to your point, absolute. The exhaustion led toward, instead of being like exhaustion where there's nothing left, I exhausted the fumes in the tank, and then all of a sudden exhaustion still came, and I contemplated taking my life, but I never did. I What I would do is I would uh, sedate myself with, with uh, gravel and melatonin so I could just sleep away my day. That's what I would do. i just keep popping these things, pills and pills and pills. So I tried to exit, but I didn't really want to exit until all of a sudden I realized that I'm still exhausted and the narration changed from exhausted because of something to now being exhausted towards what? And I took exhaustion and I moved it towards something. And I just said, I got to do something. I got to do something. And what I actually did is you have to remember that I had become a business person. I'd been known from that in the area. My wife says, listen, you got your class. You still have your class ones, baby. Why don't you just hop in a truck and drive? And I thought, me? Drive truck? I'm not a trucker. And she encouraged me, just like she did earlier, as an opportunity. What is it? And I got my ass out of bed. And my friend, I got behind the wheel of a big rig, and I became a long-distance trucker for about two months, and I got my head screwed on straight. And I'll tell you something. I pulled over at rest areas at truck stops. People looked at me. They didn't. They're, they're like, hey, what are you doing here? Because, I mean, I don't dress like a trucker. I don't talk like a trucker. I'm not. And there is no trying to label these people. 
but I just wasn't that. Yeah. Because done a little bit of truck driving myself, and uh, it, it's it's a lonely old road on you, Jack. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I I've driven all over Europe. Uh, I worked for a Norwegian for a couple of years on a line truck from from Oslo to Paris. You was either driving, eating, or sleeping. <laughs> we were swindling the the swindle sheets all the time, <laughs> just to, to. I mean, he used to pay us a. Uh, at that time, a thousand, a thousand pound uh, a trip. Uh, so you'd push to do two trips in a week. So you were two grand in a week, but yeah, you know, we were breaking every door that you could imagine. Wow! For, for the for the tachographs and everything like that. Yeah. But I mean, we we got away with it most of the time. Likewise, um, yeah. I, I got captured once, and that and that was his fault. of course right (laughs) yeah well we used to occasionally give us a a bit of a break from the line truck and and we'd we'd pick up another trip uh, to take from from Oslo down to um, Toulon and Marseille and then you come back and reload in Avignon uh, and then you'd you'd just drive straight out from Avignon get it on a Sunday night drive round to once you're cleared round to this factory and this this factory used to run twenty four seven three six five. Like you, you bump your your truck on on one bay, your your hanger on the other bay, give the papers, get your head down, and they'll they'll tip it to the night, and the factory kept running. Hmm. Uh, and we always used to ring him when we were when we cleared customs in Avignon, and let him know what we got. Uh, and we used to get it used to load it up with seventy six euro pallets, was a full load. Uh, so double deck. So I rang him up. I said, "I've only got seventy-two pallets on, but uh, I'm all cleared and I'm on my way." Oh, oh! He says, "Can you nip into Riddikirk on the way back?" Now Riddikirk is like in Holland. Mm. We don't go anywhere near. I said, I "Don't go anywhere near," because <laughs> we had an office in in Holland. I said, I "Don't go anywhere near there." He said, "Yes, I have a pallet that we've got to get up here." I said, you're taking liberties. I said, that's 15 hours drive for me. I've been working all day. I said, I'm going to get me at that after me. No, please, please, do what you can. So anyway, I set off. I I said to him, you pay the fine if I get captured? Yes, yes, I pay, I pay. Okay, I said, I'll I'll do my best. I set off. Uh, I stopped off in Luxembourg, fill up with diesel on the way through. As I'm coming into Riddikirk on a Saturday morning, um, the old Nick Nick and the uh, <laughs> got pulled over by the old Bill and the Dutch Ministry. So they pulled me up, papers, driving license and all the rest of it. And just as he's about to get out of the cab, he said, ah, disc. I said, you don't want to see that. He said, yes, I do. I said, no, you don't. <laughs> he said, disc. <laughs> Took out my disc. He's looked at it and his mate stood down there. You've done this? I said, Yeah. <laughs> he says, <laughs> You must pay. And he says, mate, <laughs> he must pay. <laughs> Six thousand guilders on the spot. Wow. I said, Do you take DKV? Which is which is his card. So yeah, <laughs> yeah we take D. So 
not only have they they stung us for six thousand guilders, which is about three grand. Wow. <laughs> wow. They, they taken my keys off me and parked me up for eight hours. <laughs> so, so, so I've I've rung him up. I said, "There's a problem." He says, "No." I said, "Yes." I said, "I said, I said I've been captured." He said, "No." I said, "Yes." I said, "It's it's, it's worse than that." I said. They said, no. I said, yes. They charge you 6,000 guilders. No. <laughs> I said, it gets worse. He said, no. I said, yes. I said, they parked me up for eight hours as well. No. Oh, this is terrible. I said, well, when they, when they come back with my keys, I went around the, the, the yard and <laughs> see what we could do. So 10 o'clock at night, they've come round, given me my keys back. I've gone round to the yard. This pallet, weighing four ton, one pallet, four ton, they've stuck right on the back of my hanger, right on the back of my trailer. Wow. And uh, it's made the drive really awkward. Wow. Because it's, it's, it's throwing me ass about yeah, yeah. on a wagon and drag. Yeah. So, so I've rung him up. I said, right, I've got a pallet on the back. This is about 11 o'clock at night. Bearing in mind that you're not allowed to drive in Germany after ten o'clock on a on a on a Saturday night. Well. Uh, and he said, "You must try and get through." All right, I'll do my best. But if I get captured, will you pay the fine? Yes, I pay this. <laughs> so I set off, and we've got I've got to the the the, the Dutch German border, and I'm just sneaking through this place called Danekamp where we used to go. Uh, and just as I'm getting through into the German side, this light popped up this lollipop uh, and he's the, the old bill there and he says where are you going I said I'm just going to go over there and park up till tomorrow night he said no you're not he says you're going to turn around and go back into Ireland and then come through tomorrow night <laughs> okay oh by the way you must pay another hundred marks <laughs> wow <laughs> so, so I've, I've rung him up about three o'clock in the morning hello I said, there's a problem. No. I said, yes. <laughs> I said, I've been captured. No. I said, yes. <laughs> I said, it gets worse. They charged me 100 bucks to do it. <laughs> and they parked me up until tomorrow night. No. Because we're supposed to be at this factory. Sort of, yeah. We normally get into this factory at sort of yeah, yeah. 1, 2 o'clock yeah. on the Monday morning. Yeah. And I said, there's no chance I'm going to get there now. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll tell him you've broken down. I said, don't tell him that. I'll tell him the truth. <laughs> no. <I> said, yes. <laughs> so any, anyway, finally got through. Yeah. Finally got over into, yeah. uh, got back into Norway. Uh-huh. Drove round the factory 24 hours late. And, and it's normally, it's, this place is lit up like a Christmas tree. And, and I've, I've driven in and it's, it's like almost pitch, pitch black at two o'clock in the morning. So I parked the, the, the truck on the, on the bay and dropped the hangar on the bay. Uh, they come uh, at seven o'clock in the morning. Oh, he, he said you've broken down. We've had to close the factory down. We've had to switch everything off, run out of product. Oh, I said, yeah, he, he stuck another load on the back. <laughs> Did he? <laughs> we nearly lost the contract. Wow. <laughs> they weren't happy with him. He wasn't overly happy with me for telling them. <laughs> oh, wow. That's amazing story. Holy smokes. But, but yeah, that was, that was working for a Norwegian. Wow. But that, that was fun. 
as they was driving trucks. That's very interesting. Holy smokes! Great story. Yeah, it, it was it was it was funny at the time, but it's even funnier now when I tell it. <laughs> <laughs> so, how are we doing then? So, where did we get up to? You were. Uh, you had a couple of months driving a, a, a truck, mm-hmm. got your head straight. Got my head straight. And then uh, while I was getting my head straight, I remember thinking, so what is this all for? Uh, and again, is this so that I can eliminate that, uh, you know, things that apparently I'm the problem again, or what is this for? What is it for? And uh, there's something that came to my state of being, which is gratitude. So I went to this one seminar, ended up being a Tony Robbins seminar. I'll never forget walking into the seminar and uh told this was relationship day so it was at a date with destiny um seminar it's a six-day event and it was relationship day and i walked into the room that day and he was doing an intervention with some people over there up front in the corner somewhere and i was walking in the back and trying to sneak my way into my group but i could see our color group is sitting kind of in the middle on the other side so i'm trying to sneak along the wall and all of a sudden i hear him just turn around from where what he was doing he must have whether he saw me or not but it ended up being exactly what i needed he turns around and he says depression is the most selfish thing you could ever do and he just spits it just keeps going about how it's like you're just asking you're taking you're not just going hard and i'm sitting there going does this guy even know like my life like holy smokes and and anyway so he just walks directly to like the aisle right close to where i was and i had sat down and and uh, we ended up doing some group work. And so, of course, for me, group work was a little easier already because I've been with Meg for a while. And, you know, I realized to associate with people, of course, isn't so scary. And so the only thing is, I feel like um, everyone is moving ahead in life and I'm not. So I just stay seated and still and I feel frozen in the moment. Completely frozen. And everyone's doing group work. And they're saying, hey, you want to come join us? I'm like, no. And I'm just feeling, I guess, these old demons like, hey, I, you know, apparently I. Once didn't do group work and I feel like a complete loser. And here I sit and look at this. I'm a failure on and on. And all of a sudden in the moment being like, you know what? I'm looking around here and everybody seems to have their own challenges. Because I know all these people. I've got to know them the last couple of days. I know them. They all got struggles. And <clears throat> the thing is the way that they tool into life, that when they lose in life, they're not spooked. It isn't just that they have to win in life. But how they handle the losses in their life is so interesting, meaning they're grateful for it all. And what fascinated me is they weren't changing the facts. They could hold the facts. They're losing like X. They weren't changing. They weren't turning into hyperbole. It wasn't making it positive. It's like you. You know, you've served active duty. You've lost some service. You've you've lost friends probably to war. True, right? And so for me, it was like, hey, I lost so much. And so, of course, the focus is like, hey, listen, does life owe me something or does it owe me nothing? And if it owes me nothing, I'm looking around here thinking to myself, these people seem like they're just in a state of gratitude. So that day I decided that gratitude, because Tony said, and I believed him, he said, you you cannot live, you cannot coexist suffering and whatever it is, depression and something, anxiety, they don't coexist with gratitude. If you're in a state of gratitude, it doesn't exist. And so self-help I've tapped into, but it's a very unself helpy. It isn't a positive thinking my way bullshit to something great. Mm-hmm. It's to to wrestle with the tensions and seeing even how, you know, Tony, even when I work with military people, how, you know, we get to if we if we be about the work, take and listen to people's stories, like you're doing here. 
And it's like observing that, you know, in life, sometimes a human thinks I win when this happens. And when my preferences aren't met, then apparently it's a bad thing. And now it's a loss. And apparently I seek to eliminate that instead of being about that. Why not choose to integrate? And so at that event, gratitude was the thing. And so many stories I can share with you. We're just going to run out of time. Perhaps I'll have to have you on my show and I can ask some questions that I can bring up a story or two, but I'll just be honest. Um, I haven't lost a day of joy in my life. I've developed this, and this is no hyperbole, but I kid you not, I have an unshakable love of life. The time that I thought I lost was two and a half years when I checked out of life. My kids are young. I remember thinking I've, I really fucked it up. Like I really, pardon the language, but I really effed it up. Like my, my kids are going to be like their dad, the figure the, those, those instrumental years are gone. I mean, whatever it's fearing, like I did earlier that at a young age, perhaps everything will be taken away when I was, you know, not getting married at a super young age, but still at two and a half years, was wiped out. I wasn't existent in my kid's life at all, sleeping my ass away constantly. But just like what happened when I came out of that story, I just call it my journey. Um, my kids, they latched onto me and actually I've, de- I've developed uh, so quickly, how quickly it was almost like what was needed is that I finally got to see myself so that they could finally have the relationship with the dad that they could be authentic with. And instead of me teaching them everything, they would teach me and I would, it was, so it was both ways. So the master, the teacher showing up in the same time. And, mm-hmm. and so wins and losses. So when I think about what did this all create, it moved me through my journey and through my story. And so to be honest, I sold off all of the uh, business movements I had with Jada Homes. So all of that custom home building, I sold all of that, all the infrastructure, any buildings I had in offices, corporate buildings. And and um, I just became, my wife said one day, I'll never forget, she's so cute. She said after a meeting that didn't go very well, um, and she found the moment, like the catalyst moment, you poked at that before the catalyst. She found the catalyst and we left the meeting and she could see I wasn't too excited about what was happening in, in, in the company. And, you know, some of these challenges I've done the dealt with them before and just boring stuff. And we walked home that day and she said to me, hey, James, why don't you just become a dude? <laughs> like, what does that mean? <laughs> become a dude. She goes, what happens if you'd sell off all of your business interests in Jada and you just became a property investor? We bought some strategic property along the coastal lines. So I have investments now on the West Coast primarily, and I used to have some in Phoenix. I just sold all those. But um, you just become a dude, and you just work with your passion. You work with humans who are hungry, active in their own rescue, people who want to learn what actually it looks like to take the wins and losses of our life and ensure that we're not walking past 50% of them. And the way that that looks is most people, they don't have a muscle built towards learning what it would take to actually, when there's a loss that comes, instead of appointing that as being a bad thing and that I got to try to eliminate this, but learn to utilize it for the good that it is and be grateful and see disguised in that the heart of a loss is a gift if we're courageous enough and if we utilize and if we choose to be responsible for. So my life now is dedicated to the space. So I'm a one-on-one coach and I run a uh, no charge, a weekly wins and losses community call where anybody can show up and tap into the call. And the call is really just about a safe place where people share a win and a loss if they choose. And if not, you can just observe. And when you observe, my goodness, Tim, you should see the look on people's faces when they realize in real time that there's no need for us to convert the loss into a positive. 
but just to express it and realize it is, accept the fact as it is, be willing to say my comrade died, for example, he's dead. If you don't see, if you don't see it as it is, you'll never see clearly what could be. And so first nugget is see clearly as is. And then, so not be anxiously trying to wrestle this thing to a positive and trying to change the facts. Keep it at the fact. He died. Bullet went to the head. It's unfortunate. Here he lies. Let's bury him. You told me a story earlier. You had this backdrop of this church and this, this cemetery. And yeah. so your story, right? Your, some of your friends have gone on and, and, and not here to share a story like you are, right? And so, so it is, instead of trying to change the narrative, to actually deal with a wound when it happens and be like, it sucks, but instead of being it's bad, then I deserve this. And I'm I'm not progressing fast enough because that's often the problem. Like COVID, mm-hmm. they say the primary thing with this whole COVID epidemic is society has decided that we're not progressing fast enough. And that's where the anxiety comes from. And so to realize that we're progressing about exactly the way we need to, if we choose to participate with what's directly in front of us, win, lose, or draw, whatever comes was designed. The bullet came your friend's way, not your way. Okay, that's how it went. Instead of saying why, what for? Let it be that it falls on some responsible shoulders, like you and your listeners, whoever is choosing to, to participate and say, what can I do about this for? If you're overwhelmed, what for? What towards? If you're exhausted, what for? What towards? So that's that's kind of what I've, you know, given my life to, is being in this space. Brilliant. Mm-hmm. So that kind of brings us right up to date then. <laughs> it brings us up to date. And um, the thing I still struggle with, because sometimes people want to know, what is this? And I've got it written down. Then I focus on this. This is at the undertow. So here, I'm just going to read it. This, this is my insecurity in life today. And I still struggle here. Can I trust that how I choose to show up each day, is this really the exact proper and good place for me to be? And number two, it's kind of in line with that, but how do I actually know that what I'm choosing to be and show up as now is most beneficial to humans? So I've just given my life to making sure that I, I don't do this. Yeah, I do this for, for us is what I do it for. But to some degree, that at the core of my struggle is perhaps at the beginning. I have learned that I'm not walking from tensions because life is tension. It is not good or bad. It is all it, it all belongs. Yeah. And uh, and so to be there and to so I have four things that I do my life about. I'll just say real quickly, Tim. The four things are life owes me nothing. I said that earlier. Nothing has to be perfect. Everything is a co-creation and showing up in state. So just showing up in the state that I show up in a joyful, grateful way is my way of saying thank you. So just showing up is my way of saying thank you to life. Life is so generous of me, offers me so many opportunities. And fourthly, nothing traps me, everything frees me. So those are kind of my philosophies that I live by. Mm. Well, I can give you one more. Mm -hmm. And it's about worry Mm -hmm. because lots of people worry himself sick mm-hmm, mm-hmm. now my philosophy on worry is that if you can't do anything about something mm-hmm. it's pointless worrying about it true if if you can do something about it 
there's no point in worrying about it because you can deal with it, you can do something with it. And that's the way I look at worry. So I don't worry. Good job. Good job. And uh, Good job. And, and, I, and I don't even worry about when, when I go to bed whether I'm going to wake up in the morning because... I'll either wake up or I won't. There's no point in worrying about it. <laughs> so either it will happen or it won't, right? Absolutely. So <laughs> it'll happen one way or the other. Yeah. I'll wake up and be fine, or I'll wake up and I'm still laying there dead. Tim, words of wisdom. There's no point in worrying about it because it's going to happen anyway. Yeah, I like it. It'll happen anyway. And that's the thing. Life yeah. will just happen. And it seems like I got a little oh. acronym and it's just RAJ. It's, it's, it's resist less. Um, and the A stands for accept more. And the J stands for choose to be non-judgmental. So it's like this, this place of if it, life is going to happen, life cares less. Love, life loves us too much to care. It loves us. It says, listen, it'll happen. Can you harmonize with nature? Can you do that? Because that's your job, right? Yeah. So it doesn't matter what you do. Life will carry on. Yeah. Wow. And when you're gone, it will carry on. I can't wait to hear your we'll story. With that. Sometime we'll have to link up and you'll be on my show. I can't wait to hear your story Absolutely. because you have, you you will have um, very viscerally, when you say life will carry on, it will. You have gone through many experiences where the physicality of the being is gone. And that's that's a big one to take. We can talk about that. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Well, James, thank you so much for uh, for sharing your life mm. and your struggles. Well, thank you for being, um, yeah, firstly, being a great facilitator. I love your questions. And to be honest, uh, I never thought this would bring up so many feels for me. And so thanks for the journey. I had a great time and and actually it helped me just to see why I do what I do and, and to see patterns. And so I hope for the listeners that help them in any which way. And Tim, I hope for you that you appreciated it, you know, brought some new feels to you because let's be honest, uh, we, we all want to have a good new experience. And so, Hey, I hope that we enjoyed our time. I certainly did. So thanks for your gracious presence. It was so nice. No, thank you so much. Thanks for listening and look forward to the next one. Welcome to the Tim Hill podcast. If you have the time, you can not only listen to the episodes, but you can also watch all the shows and you'll find the links in the description below. Thank you.